Have you ever wanted to discover what's missing in your life? Metaphysics is available to all and is part of your life even if you don't know it. Welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil with Barb Crowley. Together we'll explore the mysteries behind metaphysics and how to use it to have a deeper understanding and advantage in life. And now here's your host, Barb Crowley. Hi, this is Barb Crowley, and welcome to Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil. Today we're talking to Anna Maria Manuel. You've got to say it for me, Anna Maria. Manil, Manalo. Thank you very much. My apologies. Um, Anna Maria specializes in hauntings brought about by catastrophic events such as World War II, acts of human violence, odd and strange entities. And I'm going to have her give you her background because it was pretty complex and fascinating, actually. But I have to say, before we start, I just read Unholy Structure, and it was it's a true story, and it's terrifying. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that as well as some of the other hauntings today. So, Anna Maria, thanks for being on the show. Welcome to the show. And will you tell me again about your background? Thank you, Barb, for having me on. This is really a pleasure. Um, I came about going into the paranormal and all those highly strange things, uh, kind of like in an odd way. Uh, when I say odd, I was actually a small infant, uh, probably about a year old, when a lot of very strange events started in a townhouse that my parents rented. Uh, they were pretty much newlyweds. It was into the second year of their marriage. I was an infant, about one. So all of this was told to me um, mm -hmm. by my mother and my grandparents. But uh, we were uh, infested by some type of demonic entity. And the demonic entity uh, stayed in the home or came from a tree, from what I understand. It would unfold itself out of a tree at twilight and latch itself onto my father's window. He had a study up on the second floor because he was a writer himself, like I was, like I am. Mm -hmm. uh, but it went from there, Barb. I, you know, became fascinated when I was old enough to realize what background I came from. Because unfortunately, when we moved out of that townhouse, we were followed by the entity. And to add insult to injury, the area where my grandparents built a house uh, also had the bodies of Japanese soldiers from World War II. No yeah. one ever thought it was an unofficial graveyard. Yeah. And they started building a development right on top of it. And you were in the Philippines then? Yes, I was yes. in the Philippines. I didn't come to the U.S. until I was 13. Because my audience is probably thinking, well, where are the Japanese soldiers in the United States? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's very strange to come from a background like that because I wasn't even aware that that Asian country of all the other countries on the Pacific Rim was that haunted. And I was told later on it is because of the size of it. It's very small. It's all broken up by different islands but also because it saw a lot of war. Um, there was also wars with the Spanish. It was colonized for 400 years. So you could just imagine, um, and, and this is where I'm coming from, when you see people whose lives are rudely interrupted with violence, they don't even realize that they passed 
And so they become disembodied spirits who become earthbound and never quite ascend to the light, as they would say. That, that was one of my questions. Why, why are they here? I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but that was one of my questions. Like, why have they not passed over? And is it the violence? Well, it's interesting that you asked that, Barb, because I had to think about that quite a bit as I was doing some of my investigations, even with investigations that I had done uh, in the past with MUFON, the UFO network. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, why are some people uh, host to spirits, uh, spirits that have not moved to the light? And why is it that some people never see these type of spirits? Um, I think that you have to be receptive. Somehow, you know, people unwittingly open a portal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Spirits are all over the planet. I think personally, they stay here and they don't ascend when there's something unresolved. Um, They could be in the form of just an apparition, which really doesn't interact with humans, or they could actually be poltergeists who make you know, all kinds of uh, interactions, usually, yeah, trouble. Yeah. Uh, And it's because there's something that has happened to them uh, that they need to somehow put closure on. And for the most part, it takes a lot of energy, human energy, and a lot of um, rituals in order to give these things closure, in order to help them ascend to the light. Um, Then you also have energy just the imprint of people. You know, I I have a book called Haunted Heirlooms that focuses on- I actually started to read that too. We can talk about the chair. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and you know, are are these all inhabited, these objects? And I said, no, there's two kinds. There's the ones that are attached to, you know, a ghost that haunts it. And then there's ones that just have the imprint of the energy of a ghost. You know, some houses just have the imprint of negative energy left over, especially like if you look at a a home that's had seen, that had seen crime, I can't talk anymore. Kind of like uh, In Cold Blood, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, where a lot of people were murdered or Amityville, where gentlemen murdered everybody that leaves a lot of negative energy in a place like that and Mm -hmm. a lot of times you also have other ghosts that are malevolent that are attracted to the energy of something negative like that so it gets very complicated and then there are there are haunted houses that it's not um they're not so negative right they're not um I grew up in a haunted house. We just thought that was the norm (laughs) until we became adults. It was like, oh, yeah, well, you know, but it wasn't um, like all the faucets would turn on, the lights would go on and off, would hear somebody walking up the stairs, very heavy footstep. And of course, there was nobody there. Furniture would move around, heavy furniture you could hear being moved. Nothing was moved. You know, we had that kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. it wasn't um, negative. It wasn't, you know, bad. It just was. Yeah, yeah. So you had a haunted house. And in my interpretation, that particular type of haunting is one where maybe perhaps the ghost loved the house, Mm -hmm. uh, nurtured it, 
you know, took care of it. And now there's new residents and they're compatible. Sometimes yeah. ghosts are guardians. They're not necessarily evil people or people who went through a tra- tragedy. They just simply get attached to a former life they had and they kind of don't want to let it go. In, in one way, they're stuck. In another, they're kind of like more like a custodian. So mm-hmm. they're watching over the house, um, you know, watching over you, uh, but they don't mean to terrify you. So yeah, well, they a- didn't terrify. Honestly, we never thought anything of it. And my father, like when all the faucets went on at the same time, he said, oh, we, I need, we need new washers. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so we were just rolling with it, basically. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, again, thank God, nothing like what I read, you know, you've experienced. So, yeah. But um, how do you, I know I'm jumping ahead, and then we'll get into the dirty details of what went on, which is a true story in the in unholy structure. It was terrifying, frankly terrifying. Um, but how do they, you know, it's almost unfair that not only are they murdered or something, but then they're trapped. And in that unholy structure, it was almost as if they were trapped with their murderer. Yes. Um, Without going into too much detail, what we surmised from all this, and we didn't really, I didn't have history. Mm -hmm. And when John started investigating the case, he had no idea what he was walking into. All he knew was that he was, you know, contacted by the the current owner at the time uh, because they were repeatedly frustrated by people who walked out on the job, would not continue. As soon as the the sun went down, people were vacating the premises. You know, we ought to give a little bit, because I did jump ahead, but what this was, was they were... Well, sounded like a big mansion. They were going to change it over to an inn. And um, and then you can start to tell us about what happened to some of these workers. So they had crews come in that were, you know, construction crews and and they were doing the work. And um, they were on their third or fourth construction crew by the time they pulled in the paranormal investigators. Yes. So this was kind of like a last ditch effort uh, by, I think there had been already three owners at the time Mm -hmm. uh, who gave up on it because they were losing money. The crews were discontinuing what they were doing. They were just fleeing. Uh, No one really wanted to accept their their accounts of what was going on. Um, It was a pretty conservative community. It wasn't that kind of community that was open to things of this nature, paranormal uh, ghosts and things. So what happened was the crew feeling disrespected would leave. Uh, Another crew would come in, the same thing would happen. They would have all kinds of events that I guess they were reporting it to the manager. Uh, Mm -hmm. The manager himself had left. Uh, So by the time John walked in on the case, I think it was probably already the fourth construction crew that came aboard. 
And John is the um, was a paranormal investigator, yeah, and he okay. had a team. Yeah, because yes. you you wrote the book. I read the book, but we have to be careful because the people listening didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for, for I know we'll jump ahead. You know, yeah. um, just to let the audience know, this book uh, centers around a gentleman by the name of John Curley, mm-hmm. uh, and he did give me permission to share with the audience and the readers. Uh, his real name, as well as his paranormal team, which is the Harrisburg Area Paranormal Society. Uh, They are based in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is just a couple of hours north of me. They get a lot of cases. They've been uh, doing this for over 20 years. Uh, John was the founder. uh, And in this particular case, he contacted me uh, about a month before I finally started writing the book. Mm-hmm. He told me that he had a myriad of cases and he was uh, trying to see if I could get a book together to concentrate on one of the more unusual ones. Right. We started talking um, and I forget anymore what month it was, but to make a long story short, there were about maybe five or six cases he shared with me. And I usually sit back knowing that sometimes when you write these types of stories, you're spending hours on end from chapter to chapter. And it's not where you're always sitting at a coffee house with other people. It's usually a pretty lonely profession. You're sitting Mm -hmm. by yourself, you're secluded because you need some silence. And sometimes you end up writing this at night. And what I tune in when I, when someone contacts me and a lot of these cases, someone contacted me or someone reached out to me or I was traveling. um, I immediately get a feel of what the story is about and whether it leaves me feeling a certain way. And Bart, when I say that, John had shared with me a case. Um, and as he was telling me on the phone, the story of this case, this is another true investigation. The temperature in the room started to plummet. The room I was in. I was going to say in your room. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I started getting a feeling that I wasn't alone. Mm. I started getting a feeling of almost um, menace, I guess, is the best word to use. And I did not like that. I don't blame you. (laughs) Because these things tend to attach themselves to people. Mm -hmm. And this case that he was telling me about was an active case. Oh. And he was reluctant to call it demonic because he has to have absolute proof. Most people tend to overuse the word, and I'm aware of that, especially these days. But the feeling left me very disquieted to the point where I said, let's talk about a different one. Because Mm -hmm. this, to me, there's a malignancy that I'm sensing in the room, and I don't want to spend hours uh, delving into something that might end up affecting you know, my own home and myself and my family. So eventually- Can you protect yourself? Is there anything you can do for protection when something, when a spirit is attaching itself or or really, you know, attacking you? Well, I, I do what is proactive, having had to deal with things of that nature as a small child and growing up in a haunted home. we're Roman Catholic as uh, as a country where I came from. It's 99% Roman Catholic. 
and I do follow the rituals. I do pray and I do say no Venus, just like any Roman Catholic would. I grew uh, up Catholic, I know. <laughs> yeah. And and I do take take the things seriously. I take the rosary seriously for that reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also do believe that if you ask for protection uh, from from the God, um, mm-hmm. you know, people call him source, whatever name you want to call him. Right. Uh, he does come and he does protect. This mm-hmm. particular book departs from the other books in the sense that I actually put in an experience that John had towards the end of the book, which protected him and helped to resolve a case that he had been really struggling with. It was starting to fray around the edges as far as his family life and as far as the life of the team itself. Mm-hmm. This particular situation, someone stepped in, um, and I won't give away the book. Um, Let's just suffice it to say that it was divine intervention that stepped in on his behalf. So you can give pieces, (laughs) a little bit on the book. The the thing is, um, people who took things from that house or that property Mm -hmm. um, became were attacked, really. Or, or the people around them were attacked or their, where they lived was attacked. Yes. They were attacked. There was a situation where there was a gentleman who was assigned to clear the attic. And Barb, you probably recall this. Mm-hmm. He went in there with a swagger. He was very cocky. He yeah. was a young gentleman that, you know, he was all muscled and everything. And I think he was referred to as kind of almost like a James Dean, which mm-hmm. were young audience, they're probably not acquainted with him, but, um, you know, he, he was kind of like that West side story guy. And so he went in there with just simply the intention of making some money. Mm -hmm. He started seeing, uh, some beautiful antiques. And his job was to remove everything from the attic. And then they were going to catalog them, warehouse them, sell them, whatever. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's such a huge house, which it had been actually an inn Mm -hmm. uh, at one point, there was a lot of furniture and a lot of priceless antiques that were kind of just left uh, in the attic and accounted for. So when they were trying to clear everything, they encountered that. So they sent him up there. Initially, he was alone. And that's when events started to transpire. He went in and there he was chewing gum, drinking, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he started coveting something he saw. Yeah. And at some point he took it without consent of the owner. He, he stole it. Mm-hmm. And then it went from there and he took another object. It happened to be a piece of furniture. Mm-hmm. And what happened to him is history. He never returned because of it. Right. So when when things get moved out of a haunted house, so not the kind that just has benevolent occupants like the house you lived in. Yeah. Yeah. But a house that's actually infested um, by spirits of a malevolent nature. You have to be very careful when you start renovating because they don't like things to change. They don't like things to move uh, from one room to the other um, and worse off being taken. Mm -hmm. So this 
gentleman took him. Yeah. He took a chair and uh, in the process of doing that, lost everything he owned. Including ended up in the hospital. Yeah. I mean, he, he himself was physically damaged as well. Yes. yes. And and the entity showed himself to let him know who was doing this. Yes. Yeah. This is terrifying <laughs> stuff. <laughs> and then somebody else in the book also inadvertently took something innocently. Yeah, it, it was really just, it, you know, one of the things about homes is that sometimes you, something attracts you or in this case, this gentleman was a breeder of dogs. Mm -hmm. You know, he was an electrician by day, but he also trained dogs. He bred them, also got to the point where he, he went to a separate breeder to get them. But then his task was to train them to be hunting animals. And uh, he he was so successful that, as you saw, he had a ranch mm -hmm. and he went in still following through on his father's, you know, his father was an electrician by trade. So he inherited the business. Father started to become ill. So he was out there by himself once again. And there's yeah. a common theme with these things that, that occur. It seems like it happens when the person is alone or maybe there's only another person there. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if they're playing with them and making sure that they're isolated. Yeah. So in the case of this gentleman, he was outside. He wasn't even in the house. Mm -hmm. He was in the grounds of the house and his task was to try to get electrical cable, electrical service to this old home, which was built in the 1750s. He was the one that discovered that there was a cemetery several yards from the house. And outside the cemetery that had been walled off there was a cemetery that was an acknowledged cemetery mm -hmm. but there mm -hmm. was also a burial ground that was outside of that that yes. nobody knew about basically right nobody knew about it i mean this was a community somehow left to neglect uh this is a house that has been for years sitting you know abandoned mm -hmm. for good reason that's uh, what I'm thinking. For good reason. Yeah. We know why. <laughs> and then these days, you know, people look at a piece of property and they figure, hey, you know, I, I like it. It's beautiful. It's huge. We could really make a lot of money making this into an inn. Uh, and the sad part about it is people don't go so far as to delve into the history of why something sits empty for a while. Mm -hmm. They just figure it's a bargain. So they go ahead and they do what they can to uh, own it. Do you know, nobody in your book, you never got into the history. John said, had, had said to Larry, I think one of the people on his team, mm -hmm. get get the history on this and get the yeah. history on the cemetery and the property as well. But mm -hmm. you never really came back to what the history was other than uh, sprinkled through the book. It was at 17, what, 89 or something. It was mm -hmm. an inn and, you know, there were different things, but yeah. But there was no like history, history. Of yeah. When was this what thing did, built and what happened? Yeah. What I did there, Barb, is instead of actually just simply explaining the history, I thought I would uh, go and do flashbacks, a series mm -hmm. of flashbacks, right. which is what that is about. 
That's what uh, I'm calling sprinkled through. <laughs> yeah, sprinkled through with them or flashbacks into what could have happened. Uh, right. Because it wasn't in, uh, there was a center central character who was responsible for the malice in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of people who were victimized by this gentleman right. uh, that haunt the house. Uh, there was a missing child that was later found. Um, I won't say where he was found, dangling mm-hmm. there. But uh, he was a very, very evil person in life. Was he a traveler or was he the owner of the house, of the inn? No, he was a traveler. He was he also was. going through, he was left by a circus. You know, back oh, that's then, right. in those days, there were uh, circuses that traveled through different towns. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really sure what his role was. I got the impression perhaps he was just a, a trapeze guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he, for some reason... Uh, got attached to the area, and then he focused, he stalked a young woman who happened to be on her way home. So he then decided to stay at the inn where she was staying, and this was the inn. Mm -hmm. Um, There was also a fire in this particular inn, and a lot of things happened, and I'm not clear on whether he actually caused the fire, Something tells me he might have had a hand in that fire in trying to perhaps remove evidence. I don't know. I mean, you got to remember this is before DNA. He had no reason yeah. to do what he did, uh, but uh, somehow it happened. And what's amazing, too, is the bones, the human bones were left in and around the house, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, that had to be 200 years old that murder wasn't it yes yes so that's amazing that so nobody had even gone into that area to find out yeah and 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 the sad part about it is that even the materials that were meant to rebuild the house they had left them in pallets in the backyard Mm -hmm. they left them right at the tree line and they discovered them later on still intact yeah Uh, and, and this was a pretty thorough investigation because they had to go back a number of times. They were foiled by whatever spirits, whatever energy was there so that when they tried to record, it didn't go through. But their yeah. own personal experiences somehow, they, I mean, they saw and experienced a lot of things. So it's and, a- and through the book, you talk about what happened to them. And then when it came to the camera... Mm-hmm. And and the EVPs and all their equipment, there was actually very little. There was very little. Yeah, yes. and and um, in the what they said is the house didn't wouldn't allow it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and is that were- what is that normal that that spirits allow themselves to be filmed or don't allow themselves to be filmed or or perceived? I've actually never been on a paranormal investigation other than the experiences I personally have had, Mm -hmm. um, what people have told me, but I see a lot of uh, people out there who are legitimate paranormal investigators like John. Right. Uh, And these people are very well trained. Let me go there. These people are very well trained. Yes. And they have recorded 
Uh, I forget the name of the recording equipment, but they have recorded sp spirits walking through, interacting with humans. Mm -hmm. They recorded people responding back to them on EVPs. Uh, they record a lot of activity. Um, towards the end of the book, uh, there's a listing of the equipment that John and his team had used. It's pretty extensive. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the great teams out there, one of them being First City Paranormal of Kansas. I'll mention her because it's a wonderful team. Michelle Lemke is the founder. Um, Michelle Lemke Budke. I have to remember her married name. But mm -hmm. these are paranormal investigators who are going through and actually recording and trying to get an idea of how to help these people who actually live there or have that as a business. Uh, the frightening part about uh, a haunting is that it's very hard to remove. You is have it? to do a number of, yes. And, and I think it just depends on the nature of the entity that is the center point. If the entity is malevolent, they're harder to remove. If they're malevolent, you'd probably want them there because they're guarding the home. Um, hmm. like in the house that you lived in. But if it's something malevolent, it, it destroys it destroys people. It causes yeah. arguments. It causes people to lose their job. It causes health problems. You name it. They're instrumental in doing that. Um, and it takes sometimes months, several months to remove, extricate that malevolent. And sometimes they come back. Um, you know, a, a good case in point is the, the types of cases that Lorraine and Ed Warren uh, used to investigate. They were based in Monroe, Connecticut, where they lived. Uh, and it went from, um, you know, something as extensive as the one you saw in The Conjuring, the film, uh, to uh, Annabelle, which is a cursed doll. Uh, and, and you have to seal these things. You have to know how to contain them. And they're mm. forever guarded. How do you? <laughs> you know, I don't know that I did see those films. So how do you? I, I under because I was brought up Catholic too, so there's an um, exorcism, uh, um, you know, right that um, I'm under the impression I've never met anybody directly that had this done or worked with anybody, but I understand that there's an exorcism group in the Catholic Church who will go in. Do I have you? Have I lost you? Yeah, I'm back. Okay. Can you hear me? I can hear you. You're not moving, but I can hear you. <laughs> okay. I will tell you a story that is in my Haunted Heirlooms book. Mm -hmm. uh, gentleman uh, who ended up getting gifted something called a lithograph. And mm -hmm. a lithograph is a piece of artwork. Uh, and the process that it entails is more of like an imprint into a particular type of paper. Mm -hmm. It almost left him unhinged trying to get rid of it. It evaded being burned. It evaded being torn. He finally took it. It was gifted to him personally by an, uh, another uh, dealer, another antique dealer. Mm -hmm. He took it to his house and hung it on the wall. And shortly after that, things started happening to his parents oh. who were just looking at the piece of work. Yeah. So just by looking at it, things happened to people. So he took it down, took it to 
the antique shop. But then people started avoiding the antique shop. Mm -hmm. And then one day his, his wife came home early from work and she looked in the drawing room where they had different kinds of paintings and saw it hanging on the wall. And she called him up on the cell phone and said, wait, um, I thought you told me that you took this out of here after what happened and hung it in the antique store. He said, I did. So he moved a couple of paces to look at the adjoining room of the store mm-hmm. and he eyeing the, the artwork hanging on the wall. He says, I have it right here, right now. I'm looking right at it. And she said, I'm looking right at it where I am. Jeez. So we have that type too. I don't Mm. even know what you want to call that. What would happen if you took it out in the ocean and threw it in the, uh, in salt water? (laughs) That's a good question. Salt water kills everything. (laughs) Or at least you hope it would. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was in college, I uh, ended up buying a very cheap wing chair. Jay, tell us the story of the chair, because I read this and this is pretty fascinating. And when and through my life, I've been in antique stores or really people just giving me furniture, much mm-hmm. of it antique. And I never for one moment ever thought anything would come with it. <laughs> so talk, yeah. tell us about the chair that the beautiful chair that was so affordable. (laughs) (laughs) So I went to college in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough that it was right off of the Metro North, which is a train train line that goes straight to New York City. Mm -hmm. So I availed myself of the opportunity of the fact that I could just hop on and get off and go through all kinds of things. And at the time, when you're a poor student, you go to flea markets. You don't go to antique stores. Right, right. So I would go to flea markets with friends. And, you know, I was more into it than some of them that were. One of them happened to have a beetle back in the day when Volkswagen used to make beetles. Yeah, I remember. I had a few of them. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I totaled so- a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> So one Saturday morning, I wanted to go to an open market, a flea market, and he happened to be free. He had his car. So we went over and we were looking through and a beautiful wing chair, spotless in great condition, caught my eye. Mm -hmm. The gentleman who was selling it told me that it was old. It was very old. It had been, you know, with his family for generations and left it at that. Well, I knew it was beyond my means. It was a piece of furniture. I was a college student. And then I looked at the tag and found out it was $36. Yeah. So, of course, here I am. I felt like I had a windfall. So my friend took it. I sold. I I paid for it. He loaded it into the car and he brought it back to the dorm, my Mm -hmm. dorm room. So it had only been sitting there for probably an overnight. And the next night I had to go to the library. It was kind of late already by the time I got back. Uh, And I found out the room advisor was standing at the curb waiting for me with a couple of other students. They looked like they had seen something. And when I say that, they look kind of concerned and pale, I guess. (laughs) We now we call that freaked out. (laughs) 
And the room advisor, you know, I mean, these people are pretty down to earth. She didn't really know what to make of the report that was made to her. But the Mm -hmm. first thing she asked me was, do you do know that um, you're supposed to sign in your guests? You know, were you expecting a relative or a friend to stay overnight? And I said, no, Um, I wasn't expecting anyone. Why? Who I thought maybe someone broke into the room. Yeah. Not that I would own anything of value. It's just a simple dorm room. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, a woman was seen leaving your room. And, um, you know, and then someone told me what she was wearing. She was dressed to the nines in high heels, but she was wearing flappers. Ah, oh, wow. Which is a 1920s outfit. Yeah, flappers. with fringe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And <laughs> I thought, oh, a costume party and everything. <laughs> yeah. The feel of the room started to change. Mm-hmm. It uh, let's leave it this way. It got to the point where it was so bad that I dreaded going back to the dorm room. Right. I I did not want to have anything to do with whatever that was until finally one day someone got hurt. And I had to take the piece of furniture out. And then I'll leave the audience to read. Yeah, what, wait a minute, I don't remember the part about somebody getting hurt. Well, I remember the, the seance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you yeah. did trying to clear that chair and the chair won. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a young woman and she was actually an, a nun. Um, mm-hmm. the, the place had two wings. One wing was a girl's dorm. The other wing actually was a convent. It was mm-hmm. being rented out to the school. And one of them, the very modern people, was jogging and was accosted uh, by this woman that was... I do remember this part. Go passed, ahead, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and as she was passing by, she got a very strange, malevolent feel from this person. And the next thing you know, she got hit in the leg. I don't think it was a permanent injury. It was more like a bruise or something of that nature, but it was enough to alarm her. And then it was connected back to me because of the way the woman appeared. Yeah. And by now they knew the woman, didn't they? A lot of them knew what this woman looked like. Yes. And (laughs) I, I actually was one of few that never saw her. Oh, really? I I didn't realize that. Yeah, I um, the closest I got was that there was something that was sitting on the chair and there was a a piece of folded paper that I had to reach for underneath. Mm -hmm. And in retrieving it, I felt something looking at me intently. Mm. And that's when I started to realize we really had something that was going on. it was very difficult dealing with it because, uh, you know, there you are, you're a full-time student. I was also working part-time at the time. Uh, right. So In the I, medical field, right? In yes. the field of science and black and white. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I was a psych major. I actually doubled psychology and biology, but I was a psych major at one point um, and then realized, wait a minute, um, we, we've got a situation here where I was overworking myself. Mm -hmm. overworking in the sense that I would purposively take on more shifts at the hospital I was working just to avoid being back in the dorm room. 
And so at some point I had to call it quits. I had to either give up the job to get more sleep, which meant spending more time in the room or getting rid of the chair. And you knew it was a chair the whole time? There wasn't anything else that was bad in the room until I brought the chair home. Right, right. And, and then at that point, I decided, okay, you know, as much as I'd like to hold on to this piece of antique, I had to somehow do something with it. Um, the, the minister's office or the ministry office was taking a little bit of time on these types of things. There was a lot of re- reluctance. Um, they're not used to exorcisms yeah, or events <laughs> of this nature period. They never really probably never encountered it. Um, so I had to take it to a friend and that's how it ended up on a beach. You're talking about holy water, like salt water. Right, right. To it. But it so, wouldn't let itself get wet. It somehow protected itself. You left yeah. it on a beach with the waves, with the tide coming in and still. Yes. yes. And um, it, it's interesting how that transpired because we really just needed to get it out. So we mm-hmm. brought it to someone else's house. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which wasn't very fair, really. <laughs> <laughs> And then there was a psychic involved, somebody in the dorm who was a psychic and and she, she wanted to cleanse it. She thought she yes. could cleanse it. Yes. And she she was a self-professed psychic. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a good friend at the time. Uh she wanted the way you say that, I guess no longer a friend after this or what? <laughs> We've lost touch through the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, you know, we're talking over 20 years now since I've graduated. Yeah. Um, it was one of those things where she was delving into the occult. Mm-hmm. She wanted to see what she could do about contacting it, right. whatever was inhabiting the chair. And just as a cautionary tale to everybody who's listening, you know, when you deal with an Ouija board, mm-hmm. and you probably already know this, Bob, you don't really want to take it as a game. Right. You don't want to open those doors, especially no. when you don't know what you're doing. And you know, I don't and know anybody who knows what they're doing that plays with the Ouija board. <laughs> yes, I agree with you. But, you know, we were 19 year olds. We didn't mm-hmm. really know any better. We were into the adventure of it, trying to take control right. of what going on there so we were going to try everything we could and when we thought it was innocent because i did it then too you know the kids do it now they still do it now yes yeah. yes and, and we and thought just, it was innocent yeah, yeah. And, and but i want to bring up too the guy who helped you out and to carry that the chair bring the chair from the flea market to your house mm-hmm. he was also affected and the chair was nowhere near him I mean, he put it in his car and then he took it out of his car and that was Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And he was affected. And he was affected. Sometimes things attach themselves to us that we don't realize. And then we wonder, why is this happening? It Mm -hmm. could be something as innocent as maybe having a conversation with the wrong person sometimes. Well, let me tell you, in a little way, I'm afraid to be talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) You laugh, but it crossed my mind. (laughs) well you know you i did i did think that should i be talking to you (laughs) but you know um 
in the in the house, I'm going back to the house where there was communication. I mean, that woman would speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was communication. Even the little boy did speak. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. with the woman, there was communication where they actually spoke back at one point and she answered. Yes. Why can't there be more communication then? Why did somebody not just say, hey, what happened here? And, you know, have a whole conversation. Yeah. yeah. Or even with the chair, you know, the people who had seen the woman, why not attempt communication? Or is that can't happen? Yeah. The take I had on that is that perhaps the woman really was earthbound because she was trying to communicate what happened to her Mm. in that uh, she was a victim. The The one in the house. Yeah. The little boy was a victim. Uh, These are people who were just passing through and unwittingly came upon a very evil person. Mm -hmm. And I, I think they wanted their story to be told in in ways that they, you know, sometimes ghosts can be powerful and and they can interact with the living. Sometimes they might not be as powerful or maybe they're being muted by something that is a lot more powerful. Um, Not speaking for John, but the import that I got from the whole thing was that the most powerful one was the malevolent spirit that started all of it. It sounded like that. And it sounded as if he had, trapped the others that they yes. couldn't leave him yes which yes. is a horrible thing for eternity yes. is there no help out there <laughs> yeah yeah for people it, like this or spirits like this is there no help yeah I, you know it, it's a rhetorical question i've asked myself time and again as well i mean in this case he had to let go of the case and just simply explain what could be done going forward I don't know if the the owners, before they left, actually contacted the Historical Society or whether they contacted the clergy. The impression I got, and and he doesn't know, is that maybe they just kind of wanted to wash their hands of it by Mm -hmm. selling. And And they wanted to sell it without full disclosure, without anybody knowing what they were buying. Mm -hmm. Maybe. in, in the state that it was in, Barb, I don't know if they're, they're allowed to do that or not. I'm not that familiar with the real estate laws, but um, it, it succeeded. They washed their hands of it, and then there's a new owner. What's and happened? you don't know what has happened since then, and John doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And John sent me a picture of the actual mansion, mm. and Barb, it's a shame because it is beautiful. It is based so- on your description in the book. I'm it sounded exquisite. I mean, just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. But uh I would never go in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, how can we're with you on that? <laughs> yeah. Now, how can John continue his work and, and his team yeah. after encountering that kind of um spirits? And again, they all came home with them. Yeah. He's a very courageous person. At some point, I think he started to feel kind of like, I'm getting too close to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had involved relatives in the case, and his wife was just sitting outside in the van. And there were other things that were also happening to her while she was monitoring the monitors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, there was a point where there was no communication that was happening between her and them. And yet they could have sworn they heard her voice 
that she was in the house when she was told stay out of the house and stay in the van. You're manning the van. What do you do? And she says, no, I, I never stepped out of the van. Right. Right. And there were times where she could see things and she was trying to alert them and they couldn't hear her. And then it didn't show up on film. I mean, she could only say, this is what I saw. Yes. Oh, I'm I'm chilled now. (laughs) So how did he, well, he used, um, he had, as you called it, a divine intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, that you talk about at the end of the book where where he was protected. He was told how to protect and how to protect himself and I guess his team. And mm-hmm. and he actually used it at the end of the book. Yeah. And um but the average person, you know, how do they protect themselves for one thing and for another, how are some people open to this? Like, you know, you're your dad and you as a child, mm-hmm. you know, um, how, how is it that, you know, you're, you're open to this or can perceive the negative where let's say I can perceive spirits, but thank God I'm perceiving all happy spirits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, you more tuned in into the evil that's out there. It, makes you closer for me at least it made me closer to god it Mm -hmm. made me more curious about following through on what people might consider just to be rituals of the church Um, every major religion in the world recognizes evil Um, yeah you could look at the muslim faith and they talk about a jinn uh and the um modern translation of that is a genie. Genies are actually very evil. Um, the what are? Jinn. They're D as in dog, J-I-N-N. That's how they're spelled. Mm-hmm. Uh, in their faith, that is to be avoided at all costs. Wow. They seem to be shapeshifters. I don't know if you're familiar with the term from the American Indian folklore. Um, there are things that cannot be mentioned. And one of them is that because they come towards you, they come near you when they are discussed. I'm, I'm familiar with it from Skinwalker Ranch. Yes. So that's the same, the same types. Yeah. Of being. Um, every religion talks about good and evil uh, manifestations um, and things that they do to wreak havoc in people's lives. So there is always a ritual that follows in order to protect yourself from these things. Um, and they all work. Do, um, do you believe this is a, like Skinwalker Ranch, I, I came away believing that there were, well, you have to, because you have a book, Portals, which I did not read. And we'll talk about it another time. <laughs> but um, that it's another dimension, that there's a a what they call them wormholes or whatever to another dimension and yeah. in the and there are other things in those other dimensions but it seems to me that um these what came through some of these dimensions couldn't seem to stay here that long without taking a human form of some kind it was they couldn't stay in their own form 
Yeah. And, and that I, might have read that wrong. It, you know, I'm pretty no, new to I, all this. I think you have it right. And I think for the most part, see where we are is three-dimensional. Um, and you're talking, talking about maybe 20 dimensions in operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, most much higher than us. Animals function in 2D, two dimensions. Uh, plants function in the first dimension. So we're pretty primitive as far as our consciousness because we're only in 3D. There are beings out there that function in the 20th dimension. And we can't even feel that because we're not spiritually advanced yet in order to be able to do so. But what based on what's out there, I don't want to be spiritually advanced. <laughs> <laughs> but what I was told, and I'm trying to remember the source of this information now, because I've read a bit on it, is that the fourth and the fifth dimension are also home to these types of beings that can go in and out of their reality and walk into ours because we're a lower dimension. Mm -hmm. They, in fact, can control us and they can walk into our um, reality very easily, relatively easily. So what you're seeing at Skinwalker probably are dimensional beings who are walking in and out. uh, And we're the only ones that have a time continuum. Uh, I don't think anybody else in any dimension as a concept of time. We're the only ones that deal with past, present, and future because we need it. Our brain is not equipped to handle simultaneous um, states of consciousness Mm -hmm. yet. So I think- Now everybody's saying that we're going to the fifth dimension. I don't know what happened to the fourth. I never hear anybody say, we skip right over the fourth, right to the fifth, you know? I've even asked people, what happened to the fourth? I've never gotten a good answer. (laughs) Um, But actually I couldn't hear you. I could see you talking, but I couldn't hear you. Are you there? Can you hear me? No? I hear you now. Oh, good. We're back. Yeah. I was going to say, Barb, I don't think you want to be in fourth. From what I've heard of fourth is where all those restless spirits and malevolent spirits are. Oh, so I'm glad we jumped over the fourth. So we so we need to jump over. <laughs> yeah. We need to go higher and higher. <laughs> but, but do you believe that we are going into the fifth as you, you know, human nature, humans? Are going I into think the there's fifth? a lot of shifts that are happening right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people probably don't realize it because it disguises itself as chaos. Right. Uh, it disguises itself as unrest. Um, if you look at the news most recently, the unrest in China mm-hmm. about policies that are inherent with the pandemic. Right. Uh, the and in Iran. In Iran. Those mm-hmm. are positive things our interpretation is oh there's a coming war there's upheaval there's okay but in order to progress it is necessary to be in a state of flux to Mm -hmm. be in chaos so that when the dust settles there's a new reality that's what that's about it's not to be feared change is not necessarily negative change could be positive um some of the changes could be negative, like we're going into a recession. I hope not. But then people have to realize what's important. Maybe it's not as important to be materialistic. 
That's I don't even know if we're going into recession. I don't think they know anymore. I think the world changed enough that, you know, the old rules may not apply. (laughs) So maybe we're not. Hopefully we're not. But you know what? We're going to have to close on this. You know, I know it was fast, right? Yes. (laughs) But I'll tell you, your book is fascinating. It is now available on Amazon, um, Unholy Structure. But, you know, uh, where can everybody get hold of you? And tell us about your other books, too, because you have a bunch of books that are fascinating. Okay. Uh, so uh, the next upcoming book will be published in the spring. It's as yet untitled, mm-hmm. but it is an intersection between a ghost experience and an alien presence. So it's unique in that sense. The books that I've had in the past are haunted heirlooms. It's about haunted objects. It's about four antique dealers. Uh, that unwittingly came a hold of something that was a possessed object. Uh, Before that, I wrote my debut memoir about a lady who, she actually just passed away about two months ago. At the time when I interviewed her, she told me about Germany. She was a Nazi youth who defected because she was against the Nazi regime. And she fled through the woods Mm. and encountered all kinds of spirits that were tortured because of the war. So, and then before that, we've discussed Portal. That was my very first book where I just kind of threw everything together, like the kitchen sink, so to speak. Yeah. Um, So I can be found on Facebook under my name. Uh, I also have something called... You want to spell it? You want to spell it? My name? Yeah. uh, So people can find you, okay. Yeah, it's Anna Maria. And then the last name is spelled M-A, and as in Nancy, A. Ellison, Larry, O. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see it. There's a few Anna Maria Manalos, but this one will say author at the end. I'm also on Instagram. And uh, of all things, I'm also on TikTok. But probably the fastest way to get to me uh, is either through Facebook or if you just Google my name, it comes up. Um, okay. I also um, have a website and people can get my books through there. It has a direct link to Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And that mm-hmm. is also under my name, Anna Maria Manalo, author.com. Great. Well, thanks so much for being on. I really appreciate it. I've loved your books and I really enjoyed our, our chat here, our conversation. Thanks for well. being on. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Barb Crowley, next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoy your upcoming weekend.